Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Welcome to this class. This class is going to explore what the doctrine of holiness is, and especially the way holiness is understood in the repentance and holiness movement. But let me begin by a disclaimer. Our aim in the next hour or so is not to determine if the repentance and holiness movement is a biblical movement that has already been determined elsewhere. Our purpose is to understand what is biblical holiness and how does it compare to what the repentance and holiness group believes. Now, I think this will be important to you, even if you're not a follower of the repentance and holiness movement, because I think there are popular ways of understanding holiness that has been packaged by the repentance and holiness movement, which actually make it very attractive, especially to those of us who might be of a more radical desire in their faith. There's an attractiveness to the holiness of that group that is informed by what I'm going to call cultural holiness as opposed to biblical holiness. So why is this important? This is important because your progress and joy in the faith, to use Paul's words in Philippians 1, your progress and joy in the faith depends on you having a biblical understanding of what holiness is. Because you're seeking to be holy. But if you don't know what the Bible actually is telling you to seek after, then you're probably seeking after a different thing. Or you might think that you are holy when when actually the kind of holiness you have is different. Or you think you're not holy while, while actually you're very much on the path of what biblical holiness is all about. Obviously, unbiblical holiness, a false view of holiness, cannot honor Christ. Because Christ is honored when we are being conformed and being shaped and being molded so that we can look like him. And so if there's a holiness that does not agree with who Christ is, then surely we are not being conformed to become like him, but to become like our cultural understanding of what Jesus probably is like. So it is so important that we actually have an understanding of what holiness is. So that when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light in Matthew 11, we will actually find his yoke to be easy and his burden to be light and not find his yoke just too heavy to carry as many people in movements that have come up with their own understanding of holiness have basically found it too much to bear. And some have either chosen to give up altogether or some are struggling through and are aiming at something that actually does not honor God. So I have seven things, seven things that I want to say that that a false view of holiness says about holiness. So seven false things to say. And then I want to mention them and then I want to clear them up and say what the biblical view is. So seven false things. Number one, that holiness is external. And I want us to see that holiness is essentially an internal thing. Number two, there's the view that holiness is in what we don't do, what we avoid. But I want us to see that holiness is actually in what we do. Number three, there's the view that holiness is something that is separate from repentance, so that you repent, but then you be holy. But I want us to see that holiness and repentance are actually one and the same mixture of things that we continue doing in our lives. Number four, there's the idea that holiness is very prominently about sexual immorality. And I want us to see that holiness goes much further than sexual immorality. Number five, the idea that holiness is to be seen in a national sense so that we as Kenya or we as the nation can repent. 
And I want us to see that biblical holiness is either about the individual repenting to God, or biblical holiness is about a particular local church seeking to be holy. And we will see biblically that there's nothing like Kenya repenting, or Uganda repenting, or any form of national repentance. And then there's the lie that holiness is necessary for salvation. And I want us to get to a biblical view that understands what exactly does that mean and how accurate is that. How does holiness relate to salvation in a way that actually displays brightly the biblical gospel of God? And then lastly, I want us to address the view of who is the holy man, who is the holy person that we all aim to be like. So without much ado, let us get to the first point, that holiness is external. Holiness is external. Biblically, holiness is essentially an internal thing. It is a matter of the inner man. In Ephesians 4, from verse 22, you find Paul asking the believer to put off his old self, which belongs to his former manner of life, an old self that is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he calls him to be renewed in the spirit of his mind. He calls him to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So true righteousness and holiness is actually the likeness of God. It is being like God. That is true righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on to explain how exactly this believer is to put away the old self and put on this new self who has been created anew to be like God himself. How exactly does it mean for these people to be truly holy? From verse 25, you see what they are to put away, put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not steal. Labor, do honest work. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let it be fitting. And then he says in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so basically the kind of holiness that you are being called to is that in your inner man, you are to resemble God. You are to put away the things that are not godlike and put on the things that are godlike. A very great example is on that last verse. Forgiving one another. How? As God forgave you in Christ. So by being a forgiving person, you are being like God. You are putting on this new person, this new thing that the Spirit has worked in you, that is actually the very life of God himself at work in you. You are putting it on, and its character is the very character of God. That's the same idea you get in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, we are... Uh, given a list of what the works of the flesh are and what the fruit of the Spirit is. There's a contrast there. Galatians 5:16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. And then he goes on and he lists the works of the flesh. And it's a horrible list, impurity, sensuality, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and so on and so forth. And so you would expect that if that is unholiness, if that is the work of the flesh, then the work of the spirit is the exact opposite of that. And so you will expect that in the place of sexual immorality, you expect sexual morality. In the place of idolatry, you expect right worship. In the place of strife, you expect unity, and so on and so forth. 
But actually you find that that list goes even a level higher than that. And the fruit of the Spirit, the contrast, the holy person who is not walking according to the flesh is described in this way. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is how someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit displays the character of the Holy Spirit. That character is seen in their love for one another, in their joy as a person, in their peace, in their patience with others, in their kindness. So we are used to looking at a holy person as a person who either dresses a certain way, does not wear a cloth that is this short or this tight, or does not eat at that place, or does not sit with those people. We think of a holy person as someone that we can just see and tell that's a holy person, that is not a holy person, but not quite. Holiness is being shown to us to essentially reside in the inner man so that a person can be very modestly dressed and a person can be very modest in their speech and a person can be very frugal in their expenditure and a person can be very legalistic in what they watch and don't watch. But the question is, are they loving people? Are they joyful people? Are they peaceful people? Are they patient people? Are they faithful people? Are they kind people? That is where the rubber meets the road. That is the kind of holiness that is an evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so yes, if a person is holy, then he will love his brothers enough and sisters enough to want to dress and talk and conduct themselves in a way that will not stumble them. However, that external act is not the seat of holiness. The inner man is the seat of holiness. This external holiness can be attained. A Muslim can do it. A Muslim can dress modestly. A Buddhist can sit and seek to control his tongue. But the fruit of the Spirit in its totality, in its Christ-likeness, is something that only the children of light can manifest in this dark and twisted generation. Philippians 1. Let us contrast then this with the kind of holiness that we hear presented to us in the repentance and holiness movement. So oftentimes when a person becomes holy or when a person joins the movement, there is what is understood as a turning away from the world and there is a change as well in dressing. So there's a special dress that covers as much of the flesh as can be covered and the covering of the hair and there's a, a way in which the men need to dress and there's a way of speech that needs to come with that. And all these are seen as external marks of holiness. But the way um, such people ought to evaluate their holiness, if you're listening and you are one in that movement, is to ask yourself, are you actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit, not how are you dressed to begin with? That's the foundation of genuine God-likeness, genuine holiness. The second aspect of holiness that I want us to look at is the common thinking that holiness is in what we don't do. Holiness is in what we don't do. And by that I mean that holiness means that I don't hit my wife. I don't get drunk and come home late. I don't cheat in examinations. I don't hoot in the traffic jam, and therefore, I am holy. However, if you look at what the Bible says, Colossians 3, the Bible again will take holiness into that inner recesses, that inner man who God has made, that how much does that inner man pervade your conduct. The, the Bible will take holiness there, and you, you're going to find that holiness is actually in what you do, 
rather than what you do not do. Let's look at verse 20 of Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These things, these rules, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism, denying the self and hurting the body, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is saying that you can observe, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, but these are man-made religion, ascetism, that bring pain to the body, but have no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So people can dress as well as they want. People can speak as properly as they want. People can restrain themselves as much as they want. But those external things, those external rules being followed, have no power to stop the push of sin, to stop the force of sin, the indulgence of the flesh, as Paul called it. Instead, instead of do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Paul says, chapter 3, verse 1, If actually you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So again, you see, it leaves the external realm. It leaves do not, do not, do not, and it calls you to ado. Seek the things that are Above, not things that are on earth. And then he explains that, verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old flesh with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Then he goes on, verse 12. The contrast. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Holy people then are identified not so much by what they don't do, but actually by what they do. They are kind and humble and meek and patient and they bear with people. And if they have complaints against you, they forgive you as the Lord has forgiven them. They have love which binds everything together in harmony. The peace of Christ rules their hearts. So believer, your pursuit of holiness is actually a pursuit of Christ-likeness in these things. Oftentimes you can struggle with one sin for so long that that one sin becomes your standard of holiness. So maybe you've struggled with pornography for a long time. And so you get to a point where to you, holiness simply means an end to pornography. Now, it will definitely involve that. Oh, that's just an iota of what it means to be holy. What it means to be holy is to reflect the character of God in all things. It is for you to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and peaceable and gentle and not irritable. It is for you to love other people. And so let not your pursuit, your agenda for holiness be defined by whatever single sin you're struggling with. That might just be the enemy's ploy to draw you away from Christ-likeness. Pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Pursue the character of the inner man. Pursue the things that are like the Christ who is above. Pursue the things that are above where Christ is seated.
Number three, holiness is said to be separate from repentance. But holiness is not separate from repentance. Usually we are told that you first repent and then you live a life of holiness. And so repentance is seen as the thing you did when you came to faith. But now repentance is behind you. You need to be living a holy life. However, biblically, repentance and holiness are actually one and the same thing. They go together. Look at First John chapter 1. In verse 5, John begins by telling us about the holiness of God. That God is light and with him is no darkness at all. Here is the God who is brighter than any light. The God who is more righteous than whatever standard of righteousness there could be. Here is the God from whom all righteousness comes from. The God from whom all purity comes from. And then John says that we who are believers have fellowship with this God. That's what he said in verse 3. When we believe we have fellowship with God and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so in verse 6 he says, if you have fellowship with him, while you walk in darkness, you lie. So he is God, all light, no darkness. And you have fellowship with this God, and if you have any darkness and you walk with him, you are lying. So who can walk with God? Who can walk with God? And so the next verse immediately tells us how we can walk with God. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are able to maintain fellowship with a perfectly unthinkably righteous God because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins and also makes us, because of his blood, purely unthinkably righteous as to have fellowship with God. Now, there is what the blood of Christ has done, which has brought me and brought you as a believer into fellowship with God. However, you and I know that there is another sense in which we are still very sinful. In which this morning, when you wake up, you are more worried about perhaps the things of this world, about the education of your child, about the rent you are yet to pay, and you are more anxious than you're full of faith. You, you find in your heart another law that is against the things that you want to do. And so how does a believer have this experience of perfect purification by the blood of Christ and yet at the same time finding themselves sinning. John says, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And so here we are, we have fellowship with God, but then we also have to say that we have sin. And if we refuse that, we are deceiving ourselves. So are we deceiving ourselves that we are walking with God? No, because John says we have fellowship with God. But if we say that we therefore have no sin, then we are deceiving ourselves. So how do those, do those things go in? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. So we constantly remaining under the flood of the blood of Christ and that means that we are living lives of repentance, of confession. That means that we are always seeing ways in which we fall short, ways in which we don't have all unrighteousness. And we are always bringing that before God. We are always claiming the blood of Christ. We are always claiming the cross. We are always claiming the empty tomb. We are always claiming the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins. That is a life of repentance. And as John connects that, that is the mark 
of the holy person who has fellowship with the holy God. They are always confessing. They are always aware that they fall short apart from Christ. And so they have boldness and confidence to come to the throne of God because they know that they only have uh, all righteousness because Jesus cleanses them of their unrighteousness. But in and of themselves, they have no righteousness. No righteousness to bring before God. They are living lives of repentance. So then you see how repentance and faith go hand in hand. Because I am aware of my guilt, of my failure, of my unsuitability before God. And then my only hope and confidence is in Christ. I need no other argument before God. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is my plea before God. That is repentance and faith conjoined. And that is the life of holiness of a person who walks closely with God. They get to love and appreciate the person and work of Jesus daily, more deeply, more intensely, for longer. When Martin Luther, the German reformer in the 1500s, nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg, the first of those 95 Theses was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And now that we see what Martin Luther meant in that, he basically meant that we know that we are always, as he put it, simultaneously just and sinful. Simultaneously justified and just before God and accepted, yet sinful. So that outside Christ, we are nothing. But inside Christ, we are everything that Christ is in his righteousness, in his uh, acceptability before God. In a very practical way, for you to develop and cultivate this life of repentance, let me ask, when you do your devotions and you are working through, let's say, first John, and you find in yourself that there are ways in which you are yet to grow in loving the brethren, what do you say? Do you say, oh, I don't love the brothers, I'm not a believer? That is not what John is saying. We are being called to grow. We are being called to increase in this love. What repentance does is it says that how much do I need Christ? Much more do I need Christ? So it is at the same time there is a humbling and one can even say a humiliation. And at the same time there's an exaltation that just shows you that I indeed am totally dependent on the grace and mercy and kindness of God towards me. That when you sit before God, when you stand before God, when you come before God, you know that you're accepted before him, not because you're doctrinally good and you're adept at things, not because you're very loving, not because you're very holy, not because you're very pure. In fact, you confess that I don't have these things. And you confess that I have these things in my Lord alone. That is a life of holiness and repentance. Number four. Holiness is often understood as very prominently about sexual purity. This is a big thing in the repentance and holiness movements. Sexual purity. There's a video of Mr. David O'War speaking. The video is dated May the 1st, 2010, where he says that if you are a woman and you come to this church and you smear your legs with Vaseline and you come to show it here, it is called sexual sin. My daughters, the Lord has sent me to tell you there is only one road. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, cover your legs Cover your legs. End of quote. This is a thing that even if you talk to many who are in the movement, 
a very prominent mark of what it means to be holy is whatever rules have been put there that are marks of sexual immorality. What does the Bible say? Number one, the Bible does say that sexual immorality is sin. One of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery. So the Bible does not condone sexual licentiousness. However, that is not the only sin. As we have mentioned earlier, that is not in itself the mark of the image of God in the inner life of a man. That is not a mark of the character of the believer just by itself as a thing. We have already seen that. In fact, what the image of God does for us, it becomes even less about whether you've slept with that man or that woman and therefore that marks you as pure. God actually calls us to something far higher. God asks us, how do you see that man? How do you see that woman? Do you see them as they are in Christ? Do you love them? Are you patient with them? Are you thankful for them? Are you generous for them? Do you pray for them? You are stopping to see them as sexual beings so that you define your responsibility to them based on whether you have sex with them or not. And now it becomes about them as people made in God's image and how have I treated them. That is true purity. It is to see people as they are in Christ. And so if you are on the phone and you're talking to someone who happens to be another person's spouse and they might be a member of your church, purity is not, did you not cross those lines that you have put around each other? But purity is, do you cherish them in Christ? Do you pray for them? Do you seek their spiritual good? Do you mourn with them? Do you rejoice with them? Do you fulfill to them all the Christian duties that you need to fulfill towards them as believers? Do you forgive them when they sin against you? Are you patient with them? God calls us to something far higher than keeping a few number of rules which are easy. You don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. But you do need the Holy Spirit to act as Christ would towards the person. And as we said, you define how Christ would act not by what you don't do, but actually by what you do. So these points are very connected, even though they are distinct at the same time. To be sexually pure is not just to avoid sex. It is to see people as more than sexual beings. It is to see people as God sees them and to treat them as such. It is to bear the image of God towards them, seeing them as the image of God. And so let us raise this standard much higher. In fact, when the standard is raised much higher, then your repentance is awakened because you see, Lord, yes, I have not done anything inappropriate towards the sisters in my church, but oh, I've not prayed for them. I've not been compassionate towards them. I've not been mindful of their needs. I've not, I've possibly stood in their path of obedience in, in various ways. I've sinned against them in far more ways, even those I've never spoken to. And so that just brings me down at the feet of the cross. And I'm thinking if God were to accept me on the basis of how I've acted towards that sister, then I would be damned. Oh yes, there's nothing that has happened. I've been faithful to my wife, but oh, the standard of how I ought to treat them is far higher than sexual acts. And so as believers, we have to not allow the world to set the agenda of our relationships. We have to let the Bible set the agenda of our relationships. That is biblical holiness. Number five, they say that holiness is uh, seen in a corporate or a national or just wider sense. 
So oftentimes Kenya has been called to repent because our leaders are corrupt. As a nation, we need to gather at a stadium and repent. That is not what the Bible says. Biblically, there are there are two main ways in which the call of repentance is given to us in the New Testament. We are individually called to confess our sins, as we saw in First John 1, and then seek to be holy, walk lives of love and truth. And then as a church, we are called to be holy as a church. And so if, if I as an individual find that I fall short of the law of God in this way, I am called to, to confess that sin and to seek to walk in obedience in that area. Now for us as a church, if one of us is found to be uh, engaging in unrepentant, consistent public sin, then we are called to actually maintain the purity of the local church as a witness of the holiness of Christ by talking to that person as an individual. If they don't change, go with two more people, speak to them. If they don't change, then take it to the church. And then let the church do the the act of church discipline for that individual with broken hearts because we seek that person's restoration. There's no national boundary where holiness needs to be existing. In the Old Testament, there was a national boundary. God had one nation, and that nation was Israel. And God was using the nation of Israel as a picture of those whom he would gather for himself and live amongst as his own people. And so within the nation of Israel, if there was a child who was caught committing blasphemy, we read the story of the child who was stoned uh, uh, for blaspheming God. We read the story of Achan. This is a form of discipline for them. They are being removed. They are being evicted. They are being uh, cast out of the number of God's people. That is what is mirrored in church discipline. And so the contemporary image of what old Israel was is not the nation of Kenya or America. And so God does not need America to get together as a nation and repent so that God may bless America. We see in the Bible that repentance is unto faith. Repentance is for God's people. Repentance is a thing for those who are walking and seeking the light. There's no national sense in which we are supposed to repent. That is to take us back to the Old Testament. And so if God is treating us as Israel, then is it us who are Israel, or is it Uganda who are Israel, or is it Tanzania who are Israel? You see, so God's nation are believers, Jew and Gentile, all together. That is what biblical repentance is about. It is individual and it is corporate only to the extent that the church is corporate. And so there's no need, there's no point of a group calling uh, a nation to repentance. There's no need of that. It is not a biblical position. It is taking people back to the old covenant when, when scripture is clear about that advancement. That we Gentiles who are away from the commonwealth of Israel, we were far from the covenants of promise. That wall of distinction has been separated. That national Israel wall has been torn down and God has brought in the Gentiles and made us one people, one nation. There's no many nations that need to repent. Number six, second last, holiness is seen as necessary for salvation. Now, the moment I say that, I'm aware of the jarring effect because I'm just about to say that holiness is not necessary for salvation, which in a person's mind feels like, oh, so the believer needs to not care what they say or think or act 
That is definitely not where we are headed. That is not what we have learned from Ephesians and Colossians and First John and the teachings of Christ and the teachings of Paul. That is not where we are headed. So let us just walk uh, uh, closely and, and understand this. So we have already seen that when we repent and turn to Christ, we are created anew. There's a new man that is formed. In fact, when we come to Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 says, You are in him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. You heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel, and you believed in Jesus. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. Upon believing the gospel, you received the Holy Spirit. Now you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. You have him indwelling you. He has come into you. You have received Christ. You have received salvation. And the Spirit is a blessing that has come to you with salvation. And so the holiness that is going to come out of your life is actually the fruit. It is the result of you already being saved. It is the outpouring of the spring that already exists on account of faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Holiness then is not what causes you to be saved. It is your being saved that causes you to be holy. Again, it is not holiness that causes you to be saved. It is your being saved that causes you to be holy. And so what you are seeking then is salvation, is this word of truth, this gospel of your salvation, this believing in Christ so that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and you come to faith and you become a Christian. Now, there's a text that is often used to support the view that holiness by itself is the thing against which we are saved. So if you might remember what I quoted earlier from David O'War, he continues after he says, cover your legs, then he continues to advise his people to wear sandals, continues to tell them to not show their legs in any way they need to cover to the very feet. And then he tells them from today onwards, down to the floor, meaning let your dress go down to the floor. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, listen to me. You have to dress as I'm telling you, that your dress has to go down to the floor. If you want to enter the kingdom of God. And a text that, that is commonly used by our friends in the movement is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let me just spend a few minutes exploring this text because it's an important text for this movement. Number one, we can consider the meaning of the text using the analogy of faith and using the analogy of scripture. What I mean is we can first of all remember the uh, what is called the impossible interpretation. So when you're reading the Bible and the Psalms say that God pulled out his arrow and God has stretched out his bow and aimed it at the art of his enemies, you never say that God in heaven has a bow and arrows, even though the text says he has stretched out his bow. You know that that is an impossible interpretation. And so you say that this is an image that is showing that God's anger is directed towards his enemies. That's what the text means. And you are using your knowledge of the rest of the Bible to help you understand what is being said here. So, number one, we've already seen that holiness is a fruit of salvation, not the root of it. 
And so the text cannot be saying that your own pursuit of holiness is the root, is the source, is the cause of your salvation. The door of salvation does not turn on the hinges of holiness. We have already seen that it is by believing the gospel that we come to be saved and holiness is a fruit of that. It is because we are already citizens of heaven that we are told to live as citizens of heaven. And so living as citizens of heaven cannot be what makes us citizens. It is because we are that we live so. So number two, so number one is just that order of salvation and holiness as the fruit of it. Number two, uh, from the analogy of faith, just thinking theologically about it. We have seen in the Bible, and we see in the Bible, that justification, when God declares us righteous, is guaranteed salvation. Let me say that again. Justification is guaranteed salvation. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, the blood of Christ, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? Because we are justified, how much more? It is evident, it is a no-brainer that the one who has been justified by the blood of Christ shall be saved by Christ. Again, Romans 8:30, what is called the golden chain of salvation. We are told those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Remember, it is the same those who are predestined that are also called. It is the called ones who are also justified. It is the justified ones who are also glorified. Nobody is predestined who fails to hear and is not called. Nobody is called who fails to believe and is not justified. Nobody is justified who gets kicked out because he's not holy and fails to be glorified. The same God who works predestination, works calling, works justification, and works glorification. It is all a work of God. John chapter 3 verse 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. So you see, eternal life there is hinged upon believing. If you believe in him, if you trust in him, if you acknowledge and agree with him that you are a sinner and you need to be saved and you embrace whom God has offered to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the second person of the Trinity, if you own him for your salvation, you will be saved. It, you will have eternal life. Eternal life is hinged upon faith. And so we see then that the redemptive work of Christ, the justification that we have by faith in him, the redemption he has accomplished is the root, is where our salvation stands upon. That is where our salvation stands upon. So Hebrews 12 then cannot be saying that our salvation is guaranteed by anything other than the work of Christ. That is the impossible interpretation. And now let's get to Hebrews itself. What does it actually say? Why is it that this one verse does not change the whole of Scripture? or at least the way it seems to read from the first reading. In the book of Hebrews, the whole book has been arguing, telling these saints, these people that have come to believe in Christ and and have come to follow him and have forsaken the ways of Moses and the ways of the temple. But because temptation and persecution and their property being taken has become so strong, some of them are being tempted to go back to Judaism, to go back to the Old Testament system, to go back to temple sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews dedicates a whole book and he constructs a theology 
explaining to them that all that priestly work, all that uh, temple uh, cultic practices, all those things were meant to point at Christ. Those things are the shadow and Christ is the reality. If you go back to those things, you will not be saved. And so he tells them time and time again, hold fast to Christ. Strive to remain in Christ. Strive to persevere. Do not let go of Christ. How shall you escape if you leave such great a salvation? Remain with Christ. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. And so in this book, he keeps stressing the sufficiency, the enoughness of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1.3, he says, Christ purged our sin and unholiness. In Hebrews 2, he says, Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest. In Hebrews 4, he says, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, our sins, which we have. He sympathizes with those. In Hebrews 5, he says that Jesus is the source, the source of eternal salvation. In Christ, we get the source of salvation. In Hebrews 7, he says, Christ is able to save to the uttermost completely and at all times anybody who comes to God through him because Christ lives to make intercession for us. And so in the whole book, the author rests salvation fully and uttermostly in Jesus Christ and not in the person. It is a book that is calling us to follow the priest, that the priest has gone in on behalf of the people and God has accepted the priest who the people are represented by and therefore the people can be assured that they are saved. If Aaron went in on the day of atonement and God accepted the sacrifice of Aaron and Aaron came out alive, then the people of Israel know that God is happy with us. God has accepted us because Jesus has gone in and Jesus has sat and Jesus sees that he has gone in as a forerunner. Therefore, we know that God has accepted us in Jesus Christ. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. And so, if the call all through is for us to hold fast to him and be saved, then we can rightly see that the holiness that is being spoken about here, without which we will not see the Lord, is either a holiness that is the fruit of holding on to Christ, as we saw in other parts. And that is why the call all through is a call to hold fast to Christ. That's that's the one option of what this holiness is. Holiness that is the fruit of faith. Or this could be referring to the holiness that is the imputed righteousness of Christ himself. So that when he tells them to strive for it, he's repeating the same instruction he's been giving. Hold on to this priest who is your holiness. Hold on to this priest who God accepts on your behalf. Hold on to this pure priest who does not need to offer a sacrifice for himself. Hold on to him and you will find holiness in him. You will be accepted on account of his holiness. Now, I personally favor the second reading. Uh, good teachers of the Bible in the history of the church have interpreted that to mean nothing else than what we get from Christ, either as fruit or as the very thing itself that we are justified by. Nobody in the history of the church will say that this holiness is a work out of which salvation arises. Holiness arises out of salvation. And then lastly, there's the view that confuses who is the prototypical holy man, who is the man who we all aim after, the man who we want to be like. Who is the goal of our holiness? Who do we have ambition to become like? Who is the holiest man in our community as saints? Who is the holiest man? In the repentance and holiness movement, there is not a denial of Christ. 
it is not true to accuse them of denying Christ. However, the place of the prophet uh, David Ward is so exalted. The prophet is the one who God speaks with. The prophet is the one who a word is on record saying that God calls him my Lord. And Jesus, he is also on record saying, sits us at his feet and talks to him. So if a word is this person who God the Father is in conference with, then the man who has attained closest to God necessarily becomes David Ward. But you see, the problem there is that biblically, the man who is closest to God the Father, the man who calls God my Father in a way that is unique and nobody else can call God that, is Jesus Christ himself. And so there's the danger there that in the people's minds, a war gets to occupy a seat that only Jesus Christ needs to occupy. He becomes a Christ figure because he is the most attained person. He is the person who has pleased God and been accepted by God. He is the person who stands between the Father and the people. He is the person who gives people points and rights to come into the presence of God and inherit eternity. He gives those rights to his bishops. And so naturally, the model of holiness is going to be the prophet or word himself. Instead of the model of holiness being the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, one person, two natures, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied, the one who was to come, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who was humbled and took upon himself a nature like ours, like you and me, and was buried and died, was humbled to the grave, and rose and sits at the Father's right hand. That is the one man who has complete access to God. That is the one man who is worthy to open the scroll, who is worthy to bring judgment upon the world, and who is worthy of bringing salvation upon the world. There is no other man except the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is our example of holiness. In Colossians 3, when we are told to put on the new man, the inner self, we are told that our lives are hidden with Christ on high. We are told that whatever we are putting on is the character of Jesus Christ. We receive holiness by association. Holiness by association with Jesus Christ, not any man. There's no other mediator for our holiness. It is Jesus himself. The very character we are trying to take upon ourselves as believers is the character of Jesus Christ. And so Paul always says, in Christ, in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to attach us to Jesus Christ. David O'War is on this side of things, not on the Christ side of things. God has no other mediator between him and men. He has nobody else that he sends to the world except the Lord Christ Jesus. He has been sent. He has given the final word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son, that's Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1. his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none other higher except him, who Hebrews 1 goes on to say, is the exact imprint of his image, the priest, the man who was made perfect, that he may be the source of salvation for us. It is Jesus Christ himself. So biblical holiness looks at Christ. Even Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Because Christ is the example. Christ is the forerunner that we all run after. And so let me invite us then to experience the joy, the comfort, the peace, the rest of holiness by focusing on the Savior. Focusing on Him who is God. 
Focusing on him who alone can receive you in your unholiness. He has given you real eyes because he has saved you. He has allowed you to know that you cannot save yourself. You are not holy enough. You are not good enough. You're not kind enough. You're not sexually pure enough. You're not committed to your church enough. You are not doing enough ministry. You simply are not enough. You fall short of the glory of God. And he gives you a gospel that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his blood. Romans 3.16 You are called to him. Let me finish with those very words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.